0: to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com.
1: Welcome back to the Free Lunch Podcast. Greg, last week we took a pretty significant U-turn in our conversation. We did. Yeah, was we, that a U-turn or a left turn? Well, I guess it was a left turn. I don't know, one of those turns. We took a turn. We took a turn. We deviated from our norm. That's right. We interviewed Dr. Joel Simmons. Dr. Joel Simmons is a medicinal cannabis doctor out of Ohio. I actually found that to be a fascinating conversation and learned a lot in that conversation. For sure. It was something that some listeners said they enjoyed But we did get some feedback from some others that said that, okay, great. But what about the markets? Like, shouldn't we be talking about those things?
2: Oh, yeah, those.
1: So today we're going to get back to markets, a different type of market, like stock and bond markets, stuff like that. So, Greg, I'm not sure if you've noticed, but interest rates have gone up pretty dramatically in the last nine months. I did notice. Yeah. In fact, I can tell you how much they've gone up. Okay, sure. A lot. Yeah. How much? 3%. 3%. So that's been a significant rate hike period. And I guess it leaves investors questioning, why is that? Because isn't it leading us into a recession, as others will say? But those rate hikes are being done to fight inflation. There's only certain levers that can be pulled to fight inflation. And we're going to get into that today. Talk about monetary policy. We're going to discuss monetary policy and the tightening of the money supply and hopefully give our listeners a chance to better understand the current stance being taken by almost all central banks in the world right now perhaps with the exception of the UK, which they took a different turn. Maybe they took a U-turn, actually. So everybody was going along with the left turn in tightening the money supply. And then the UK, with their new prime minister, new finance minister, came out with a very Keynesian approach to the economy and said, we should cut tax rates and increase government spending, which would increase the money supply.
2: We could probably spend a whole episode talking about what they did.
1: Well, I mean, we can summarize what they did after that is they reversed course immediately Yes, because they were punished for it. It was not
2: a popular move, no.
1: Yeah, like UK bonds went down significantly. The pound went down significantly because of that. But let's get into monetary policy today, Greg. Sure.
2: Just a couple of comments on trying to get a handle on what is monetary policy. Basically, it's the control of the quantity of money available in the economy and the channels by which new money is supplied. So there's lots of factors that influence monetary policy strategy, things like gross domestic product, rate of inflation, some specific growth rates in the industry or industry sectors, that kind of thing. So monetary policy is controlled by central banks and a central bank may revise the interest rate it charges to loan money to the nation's banks. And as rates rise or fall, the financial institutions adjust rates for their own customers, such as businesses and home buyers.
1: And you're seeing that right now with the bank prime rate in Canada going up, I don't even know what it's at right now. Is it 5? 5.45%. With probably one more rate hike to come. I would think. We're going to be around the 6%-ish range. That's right. Whereas in January of this year, it was... 2.7 maybe?
2: I think it was even a little bit lower, it could but... Be. That's definitely changed. It's pretty dramatic and it affects interest on lines of credits, on mortgages, things like that. So The other thing that the central banks can do is they can buy or sell government bonds and other bonds, such as mortgage-backed securities, and that's something that's been known as quantitative easing or quantitative tightening.
1: Yeah, also known as open market operations.
2: Yeah, they target foreign exchange rates. They can revise the amount of cash that banks are required to maintain as reserves, that kind of thing. There's a few tools in the toolbox and that's what's available to the central banks. So a couple of types of monetary policy, they can either be expansionary or contractionary depending on what level of growth or stagnation is going on within the economy at any time. And so the central banks are trying to read what's going on in the economy and make adjustments to monetary policy to deal with whatever's going on. So contractionary policy is a period that we're in right now. And that policy increases interest rates and limits the amount of outstanding money supply to slow growth and to decrease inflation. Inflation obviously being the big factor right now, where the price of goods and services in economy rise and reduce the purchasing power of money. So that's the situation we're in right now looking at inflation 8% year over year. It's been there for a few months now. And that's clearly what the central banks are trying to address right now.
1: I think it's working because the US inflation rate peaked out at 9.1% in June, and it's come down
2: to something like 8.3%. That's right. And again, keeping in mind that those inflation rates tend to compare the consumer price index today to a year ago. And when you look at the month over month changes, it is definitely slowing down. So presumably, this contractionary policy of increasing interest rates is having some effect. And then the other situation would be more of an expansionary type of policy where if you're in a slowdown or a recession, the expansionary policy grows economic activity by lowering rates. Saving money becomes less attractive and consumer spending and borrowing increase. And so we've seen that from time to time, although we haven't, well, we saw it big time during the early stages of the pandemic. And certainly during the global financial crisis. Maybe we'll talk about some of those details a little bit later. Sure, yeah.
1: Well, I think it's really important for everybody to understand that it is a cycle. And the business cycle is expansion, peak, contraction, trough, repeat. And so right now, obviously we're not in expansion. We're not near the peak. We've come off of the peak significantly. So the argument is, are we still in contraction or have we actually hit the bottom, which is the trough. And we won't know that until after it happens. Exactly. But what are the goals of monetary policy? They're threefold. And I want to talk about the one that it's not first. Monetary policy has nothing to do with the stock market. That's not in their mandate to prop up stock markets. I think that investors don't understand that for the most part. The monetary policy of central banks is to focus on inflation, unemployment, and exchange rates. So as you mentioned, we're in this period of higher than normal inflation. So contractionary monetary policy is going to be used to target this high level of inflation and reduce the level of money that's circulating in the economy, which is sometimes called the velocity of money. So they want to slow that velocity of money. So as I mentioned, inflation in the U S in June was around 9.1%. And today it's, I don't know, like you say, somewhere around eight. So, That, I don't know, tightening of money supply by increasing interest rates is working, but it takes some time. It does. The second part is unemployment. So central banks, dual mandates are inflation and unemployment. They're focused on the unemployment levels. An expansionary monetary policy decreases unemployment as a higher money supply and attractive interest rates stimulate business activities and expansion of the job market. And that is 100% not what we're in right now. We're in a contractionary period, as you mentioned.
2: It's an interesting time because we've got very high inflation and we have very low unemployment, particularly in the US. And so, in a sense, by combating inflation and raising interest rates, the central bank is actually on a path to increase unemployment which ideally is not the ideal scenario in the economy. But at the same time, they have to deal with priorities. And certainly 8% inflation is a big priority. The main priorities, what's that formula?
1: GDP equals C plus I plus G plus NX. GDP equals government spending plus investment plus consumer spending plus your net exports. And so the third part of the goals of monetary policy is exchange rates. So if you can adjust exchange rates between domestic and foreign currencies, you can adjust your flow of net exports. So look at Canada today, our Canadian dollar is somewhere around 73 cents. Sucks if you're a snowbird. exactly. If you're going down to Arizona or Florida or California for the winter and you're converting at 73 cents, it's terrible. But if you're exporting goods to other countries, all of a sudden the demand for your goods goes up. So your net exports are going to go up. And that actually benefits the overall economy of Canada or the US or whichever country is doing that. Okay, so the tools of monetary policy, as you mentioned, there's a couple. It's kind of threefold, three levers they can pull from. The one that's being pulled right now is the interest rate lever. So raising rates is being done to slow down spending. Slow down spending is being done to bring down inflation. The most obvious example of this to me, Greg, is the housing market right now. Six months ago, everybody was sitting on these big windfalls. Is that a word? Windfall? Yeah. Yeah. These windfalls, I had to check that for some reason, (laughs) saying, oh, my house is worth a million dollars or whatever. And borrowing costs on a mortgage in January were around 2% for a five-year mortgage. Today, they're around 6%. So all of a sudden, the demand for- a purchase
2: of a house has come off quite a bit. Therefore, the price has come off. So that's one way. Well, just an interesting note on the housing market and the differences between the US and Canada. It was pointed out last week in a talk we attended that when interest rates go up, as they have in the US and Canada, but let's talk about the US for a second. So there's a lot of buyers in the market, people that got into the housing market in the US over the last few years as prices were skyrocketing, but interest rates were extremely low. But many of those people in the U.S., of course, they have 30-year mortgages with the interest rate fixed for the entire 30-year term. And therefore, people that are in the housing market, even if interest rates go up and affect mortgage rates, they won't really affect existing homeowners, but they will certainly affect the ability of new homeowners to get into that housing market. In Canada, it's a little bit different because we can certainly pick a 25-year amortization on our payments, but most loan terms or typically at the most five years, which means that people that bought a house during the housing boom of the last couple of years at low interest rates, they're going to be forced to refinance in the next few years. And so that's going to have a big impact, not only on new home buyers, but existing homeowners who have to renegotiate their mortgages at much, much higher rates. So the impact of interest rates on the housing market can be pretty severe, particularly in places like Canada, where we have to, renew those mortgages every three to five years or whatever.
1: Yeah. And so how people have dealt with that historically is maybe they've looked at variable rate mortgages. That's right. But those variable rate mortgages have gone up quite a bit. They might be variable on the way up as
2: well as variable on the way down. That's right.
1: So that's the one lever is interest rates. And central banks, they do impact inflation, supply and demand by raising or lowering interest rates. The second lever they have is what we mentioned earlier is open market operations. So that is simply where... In the US, the Federal Reserve would go into the marketplace and they would buy up bonds that are trading in the market to inject liquidity back into the economy. Or if they're trying to tighten things up, they would cease their bond repurchase program or slow it down. It is meant to adjust the money supply. It is something that during the global financial crisis became a big thing where we had the US Federal Reserve going out and purchasing government bonds from the marketplace. And then during the pandemic of 2020, do you remember that, Greg? Vaguely. Vaguely. (laughs) When the stock market went down 35% in two weeks and the Federal Reserve went out to the marketplace and did their bond open market operations, for the first time ever, they actually started buying some corporate bonds. That's right. To inject some more liquidity into the system. So that's lever number two. Lever number three is they can adjust the reserve requirements of banks. So if they want to tighten things up, they can raise the, in Canada called the tier one capital requirements of banks, how much money the bank has to have on hand at all times to offset the event of a bank run or something like that. If they want to loosen things up, they can reduce that tier one capital requirement. These three levers are what the central banks have at their disposal. And unfortunately for maybe stock market investors
2: right now, it's really focused on interest rates. That's right. I just wanted to spend a second talking about the difference between monetary policy and fiscal policy. As we've talked, I mean, monetary policy is basically used by central banks to sustain a level economy and try to keep unemployment low, protect the value of the currency, maintain economic growth. By manipulating interest rates or reserve requirements or through open market operations that we talked about, the central bank does have that effect or the ability to affect borrowing, spending, and saving rates. Now, fiscal policy is an additional tool used by governments and not the central banks. So while the Federal Reserve can influence the supply of money in the economy, the U.S. Treasury Department can create new money and implement new tax policies. It can send money directly or indirectly into the economy to increase spending and spur growth. When you look at what happened, let's say, with regards to the pandemic, you saw very substantial monetary and fiscal tools used sort of in a coordinated manner to try to respond to that dramatic but short economic slowdown that was caused by the pandemic. And so what we saw on the monetary side, interest rates basically were cut back to zero again. And on the fiscal side, governments poured trillions of dollars into the economy with direct payments to businesses and individuals, Well, that's the
1: CERB program.
2: That's part of fiscal policy. That's the difference, but the two certainly can work in a coordinated fashion.
1: I know though, in my reading, if you had to gauge the two, that monetary policy has been shown to be more effective than fiscal policy, but it takes longer. Is that, do I got that right? No, pardon me. I have that exactly wrong. Fiscal policy has been shown to be more effective, but it takes longer than monetary policy. Sure. It makes sense. Yeah. So when you adjust a tax rate, it takes longer to impact the flow
2: of money than the immediate raise or cut of an interest rate. Exactly. One thing uh, people wonder well, how often does monetary policy change? And basically, it has the potential to change fairly frequently. So, the Federal Open Market Committee of the Federal Reserve sometimes you'll hear people talk about the FOMC, that's just the Federal Open Market Committee. They meet eight times a year. At those meetings, they determine any changes to the nation's monetary policies they want to make. And they may also act in an emergency, as was evident during the 2007-8 global financial crisis and the COVID-19 pandemic. And just to look at, well, how do interest rate changes? I was looking at some reports going back to 1990. And starting in 1990, going into the first half of 1990 interest rates in the US, the federal funds rate was 8%. Long times it's been 8%. 10, 12, 14, 16, 18. They raised interest, or they cut interest rates, I should say, 20 times between July of 1990 and September of 1992, taking the federal funds rate all the way down from 8% down to 3%. So that was quite a decline over a long period of time, essentially over a period of two years. So is it fair to say that they'd raised rates to curb inflation back then? Sure. Coming out of the 80s, you recall that massive inflation that was prevalent and interest rates I think in the early eighties shot up to twenty percent. Well I don't recall. I was in elementary
1: school. Okay. But no, I recall you can tell me. <laughs> but so they raised rates to offset inflation, which caused a recession. And then they cut rates to stimulate the economy to increase the money supply, which created a new
2: economic expansion period that lasted for a while. That's right. And so why did the Fed cut rates that much in nineteen ninety? Was the Gulf War and the recession? That went along around the same time. Okay, in response to some economic changes that resulted from low interest rates, there was an expansion that had the Federal Reserve concerned that the economy was growing too strong and overheating. And so they implemented a series of rate hikes between 1994 and 1995. And they went from the 3% where we ended in 1992 up to 6%. So essentially doubling by February of 1995, that was pretty much up until recently, that was really the worst year for bonds in quite a long time. And in fact, bond returns were quite negative that year to the tune of about four and a half percent. I think in Canada it was negative 4.9 in 1994, yeah. or something like that. And in response to that, the Fed made a mid-cycle adjustment and went down from 6% down to five and quarter percent over the next six months or so. And of course, we saw bond returns jump by about, I don't know, 19 or 20% that year, following that negative year. So the Federal Reserve, they can act at every meeting. They can also change the amount by which they raise or lower interest rates. And we're in a period of time right now, as I mentioned earlier, so since March, the Federal Reserve has raised interest rates five times. They've increased them by 3%. So 3%, I believe this would be the fastest rate hikes of that magnitude in the Federal Reserve history. And so we're seeing a very dramatic increase to the current federal fund rates of, call it three and a quarter percent. And they could continue raising, they could wait, they could hike and wait and see what the inflation numbers do. But we know there's another meeting coming up in November and it's largely expected that we'll see yet another rate hike. So be interesting to see what happens there.
1: For sure. Well, I guess some people might ask well, why are we so focused on the US Federal Reserve versus the Bank of Canada? I would say it's just because the US is, I don't know, fifty eight
2: percent of the global market and Canada's 3%. world's largest economy. It has impacts all around the world, what happens in the US.
1: Yeah, there is a thing. I don't know if you remember back in two thousand eight there was this the decoupling myth where it was thought that emerging economies could decouple their growth from consumer demand of the US consumer. Remember that? (laughs) That was proven to be bunk, that those emerging economies needed the US consumer demand in order to fuel their own growth. Okay. So how has monetary policy been used to curb inflation in the US? Well, you've just actually went through some great examples of that. A contractionary policy is meant to slow economic growth and even to increase unemployment, which is not actually a very favorable thing to most people when they say, hey, you're raising rates and we're losing our jobs and the price of everything's going up and why are you doing this? But it is meant to level out an economy. And there have been some great examples of time periods where rates have gone up quite a bit, as you mentioned, like during the 80s. I mean, the Federal Reserve rate was around 20%. That was a terrible time to be borrowing money to buy a house. That was a fantastic time to be putting money into a GIC. So it depends on which side of the equation you're on at the time when it happens. And inflation came down over the course of a few years because of those rate hikes. So it worked. So everything that's being done now is being done because it's worked in the past. I want to make this point, like historically speaking, like in the past, as you mentioned, in the 90s, bond rates were quite negative in parts of the 90s, I should say. And the year after the negative return, bond rates were up like 15 or 20%. So why wouldn't we expect kind of the same thing at some point
2: now? And we certainly do. And as we've talked before, and again, this isn't a discussion about bonds specifically, but anticipating that we're going to finish the year with a very big negative return on bonds, relatively speaking for bond returns in general. What we do know, as we've talked about before, is that as bonds lose price in response to rising interest rates, their yields to maturity increase. So from this point forward, the yield to maturity on many existing bonds in the market are a lot higher than they were a year ago. A lot higher.
1: Oh yeah. Like you're getting investment grade, low risk bond pools with a yield to maturity of 8%. That's right. Whereas a year ago, that same yield to maturity was probably like two and a half. To four or something four. in that range. Yeah. Yeah. Four would have been on the high side. Okay. So the other thing the Federal Reserve does, because we're talking a lot about the Federal Reserve, is they're also called the lender of last resort. And the reason they're called that is that they do provide banks with liquidity and regulatory scrutiny to prevent them from failing. Why do they do that? Because they want to stop a financial panic from occurring in the economy. And I guess the argument against this might be back to the global financial crisis when they did let some big U.S. banks fail, in particular Lehman Brothers, Washington Mutual, Bear Stearns, yep. things like that. That was a much different time, though, than where we are today today, I would say. sure. I mean, it's not to say a bank can't fail, but I had some discussions with some friends recently and they were talking about how they wanted to buy a GIC and they wanted to put it in this Canadian bank, but they were worried about putting it all into one Canadian bank. Should they spread it out to the big five because of Canadian Deposit Insurance Corporation guarantees? And the discussion we kind of had was, if that big Canadian bank that you're mentioning fails, I hope you're stocked up on bottled water and canned food. Yeah, exactly. So I
2: don't know why I'm going there, Greg, but. It's a concern and it becomes a concern in various times. And the global financial crisis was a financial crisis and there were real concerns. And the good news is that since then, in both Canada and the U.S. and not to mention the rest of the world, there have been tighter controls put in place to try to prevent financial institutions from becoming too big to fail and that kind of thing. There have been improvements in the regulations and capital requirements, things like that. And we hope that that'll continue and anything can happen, but we have to be realistic about risks and just continue to live our lives and not worry about every horrible thing that can happen.
1: Yeah, I mean, the bottom line is, look, if it comes down to your investment portfolio and we're talking about monetary versus fiscal policy and all that stuff, bottom line is just
2: stay invested. We're in a cycle that will come to an end and a new cycle will be created It's interesting because over the years, and even now, of course, there's lots of armchair quarterbacks when it comes to actions of the Federal Reserve. And it's easy after the fact to be able to say, oh, the Fed raised rates too many times, they created a recession, or they caused this inflation by keeping interest rates too low for too long. And it may or may not be true, but the bottom line is they're working with the best information they have. And the other thing too is that recessions aren't a bad thing. They're bad on a short-term basis, but they're good on a long-term basis because what happens in recessions? Well, a lot of companies, for example, that shouldn't be alive, cease to be alive. There's companies out there operating that don't have profits, don't earn profits, and they're still able to raise money by issuing debt because of the incredibly low interest rates that have been up there for so long. And these companies should be put out of their misery. And companies that are successful and are generating profits and things like that, can rise to the surface. So, I mean, recession, it's part of the business cycle. And as you mentioned earlier, you know, there's four phases of the business cycle and you can't eliminate one of them. Maybe you can spread out the length of time or how long a cycle lasts, but in the end, the business cycle cannot be repealed, as they say. Just
1: one final point to that, Greg, is investors might say, okay, great, but what does that mean to me? All we can do is look back at previous business cycles, previous recessions and contractions and expansions and say, look, the last person to invest their money before the global financial crisis, the last person in, as long as they stayed invested within two or so years was made fully whole. Then experienced the longest bull market in US stock market history. Exactly. Why wouldn't we expect something to that effect going forward from here?
2: Yeah, that's right. Well, okay, we well, have, we've
1: beaten that horse, I guess. Yeah, we beat it. Yeah, we beat that bear horse. Okay, well, I guess that's it for today. Thanks for joining us. And I guess till next time, we'll see you next time.
0: Thank you for listening to the free lunch podcast hosted by the CM group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the free lunch podcast. 22